is called Great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw what saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. So we see this interesting account here taking place of the church, as we saw last week, has been scattered, and now these people go and start to preach in Samaria. And so in God's providence, as this what would seem to be a horrific thing befalls the church of Jerusalem, it actually spreads out these saints to go and then proclaim the gospel to Samaria. We see the beginnings of the fulfillment of the Great Commission as those scattered saints now bring the gospel outside the walls of Jerusalem. So we pick up here today with this story of a magician named Simon. If I was to break this section down into one concise statement, it would be this. True and abiding faith is a gift from God that cannot be conjured in the mind or bought with money. You must die. And we'll see this story of Simon in three warnings for us to take heed from. First one being perceived belief and professing belief are not true faith. The second being the heart must be changed. And third, God cannot be bought. And so I hope that this story would cause us to search our own hearts, examine ourselves in light of God's word, we might find ourselves abiding in Christ alone, having had our hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit. So before we get into this text, let's bow our heads and pray to our great God and Savior. Our Father in heaven, we do now come to uh, the preaching of your word, and we ask that you, by, by your Holy Spirit, explain these things to us, Lord, that we might grow in our understanding and knowledge of Christ, that we would grow in holiness, as we look at this story of Simon the Magician, Lord, I pray that your glory would be seen, that I would decrease as Christ increases. Lord, would you feed your flock now? Would you encourage the weary saint? Would you bring new life to those that may not know you, God? 
Would you cause your spirit to fall upon us now that we might receive with gladness your word and your instruction. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look back now to verses 9 through 11 as we're introduced to this man named Simon. We learn a considerable amount from these couple of verses. We learn that he's a magician. He's one who's practicing sorcery. He's doing some uh, magical spells, has some kind of attachment to the occult. This man was an occult magician found in Samaria. He's someone who is self-proclaimed as great. We see there in the end of verse 9. He himself says he was somebody great. The people recognize him as such. They say this man is the power of God. And so we see this checklist of demonic influence found here in Simon. Claiming greatness, claiming to have the power of God, claiming to be a magician, a sorcerer of some sorts. And so we examine these descriptors given, and we start with this place that Simon is not the greatest influencer for Samaria. I think that we have to understand what is taking place here when we see the word magician. We often kind of get this idea of, well, maybe a David Blaine or a a Houdini. But I think we're often so quick to be seen as hyper-charismatic. And kind of when we come across anything of magic in the Bible, we think, oh, maybe that's just kind of cheap card tricks. But there's a a serious warning for us to see here in, in the text about magic. Um, it's something we can't take lightly, and I, th- I think the scripture is very clear on what uh, we are to do with magic, and we're to stay away from it. So again, I'd say it's kind of safe to say the majority of us here this morning are aware of this idea of magic. We're also aware of the other end of the spectrum, of those hyper-charismatics that would claim to put a spirit of something on every little thing that happens in their life. You know, you see these examples of, oh, the coffee spill. There must have been a spirit of imbalance. And so we must find some kind of middle ground between a hyper-spiritualized and, and over here in, in maybe our camp where we're just kind of saying, well, nothing's really spiritual. And so we come to a text that speaks of magic, and we have to understand that we often have a tendency to dismiss it altogether. We might even put it into a category of maybe cheat parlor tricks or sleight of hand. It can be hard for us to categorize such a topic without, fear of, uh, without the fear of sounding too woo-woo, as you could say, you know, because we're often so uh, unable to put magic into a category. But I think it's important we have a biblical understanding of magic, a biblical understanding of what's taking place here with Simon the Magician. And again, like I said, we're not talking a David Blaine or a Houdini here. This is real dark arts magic that's taking place. John Wesley, commenting on magic in his journal, had these words to say that the giving up of belief in witchcraft is giving up the Bible. Very interesting statement from Wesley there. Such a strong statement, I believe. But it has quite a biblical warrant for it if we see what the scriptures say about magic. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, informs us that we shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So a quick glance into Scripture, and we see that 
Wesley's claim is true. If we deny that magic exists, then we deny that the Bible has forbidden us to uh, perform such things. And so he sees examples of magic. We look at the Old Testament and the story of Exodus, and you have Pharaoh's magicians, and they're performing miracles of turning staffs into snakes. We see magical things taking place uh, by wicked men. Um, I think it was even Samuel who sought after uh, a spirit of, of knowledge. So we see this demonic magic throughout Scripture. It's something real. It's something that takes place. And we're to be mindful of that and warned to stay away from this. And so Simon here that we see in the story has tapped into some sort of occult magic. And he's grabbed the minds of the people there in Samaria and they call him the power of God that is called great. So we begin to see what the influence of this magician has had upon the people of Samaria. That they've come to this place where they call him the power of God called great. Such a title is only fit for the one true and living God, and yet they've placed this title upon Simon. So we see here the great danger in practicing magic as it elevates one to a pseudo-divinity, a false God status, and such a blasphemous outcome as the people call him great. So the people are enthralled with his sorcery, and claim that he is of God. Notice there in verse 10, all of them, from the least to the greatest, or the educated to the uneducated, all the peoples there were held captive by Simon's sorcery. Church history would tell us also that Simon is a high-profile character, someone that would have been well-known throughout Samaria, what you could call almost a household name, Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist, writing about 100 years after this account, would tell us that Simon would go on to be honored in the middle of Rome with his own statue. So Simon is not just some run-of-the-mill magician. He, his fame reached the center of Rome, which at the time was the center of the world. So this magician, well-known. So we see that Simon has quite a reputation with some in Samaria amongst the people. One could only imagine the type of sorcery that he's performing because it says there that he's been doing this for a while. And so, you can imagine that pulling a rabbit out of a hat is not going to keep people entertained for more than a few days. And so this sorcery that's taking place, we don't know exactly what's taking, uh, going on, but there's something that's taking place that's held the people's attention for quite some time. And so it's leading to this false worship as Simon is being deified. Simon's being lifted up as this one called great. So we see here the warning for us now to not draw near to this kind of magic, this kind of sorcery or, or divine, apparent divine revelation. You know, it's in our culture today with the postmodernism and then going into this New Age spiritualism, everyone's seeking some big sign or some grand experience that's so easy to fall into the temptation of this type of magic or sorcery, to seek something greater than what we have in our own lives. Everyone wants the next big experience. And so Simon here would provide that next aha moment and seem to always be grasping for that next moment when God has given us all things sufficient for us in his word. We need not look any farther in our own cities to find 
the small building with the neon light that says psychic on it. Those places that you can go in and pay a fee to have your fortune told or your future read. You can read the newspaper and look in the horoscope section and have the astrology and the signs and and the stars aligning with what day you're born and all these things outside of Scripture that are attempting to uh, inform our view of this world, inform our view of ourselves. And so we must be careful of these kinds of influences. And I know some of us might scoff at the idea that any of these examples could be detrimental to our faith or that any of these things are actually have any kind of harm behind them. But the Bible is clear. It warns us. Do not have anything to do with divination. Do not have anything to do with magic. It is a real and present danger. And as we see the people of Samaria, they've fallen full on into what Simon is, is teaching and showing them through magic. And so we would be wise to not follow in their path. I think there is a a great danger in consulting in which that which the Bible forbids. And I say that because I think there is a temptation of curiosity towards these things. There's a temptation of, well, does that Ouija board really give me an answer? Does that horoscope really align with what's going to take place? And in the flesh, we can have these temptations that we're drawn to the supernatural. We're drawn to this idea of even sometimes the spiritual demonic. You know, we want to study about demonology. We want to get deep dive into these things because they spark our curiosity. I'll admit that. They can spark curiosity. But what we must remember is that these are doorways into something we don't want to step into. And so the, the warning there off the bat is we can't know the future. We can't get deeper insight into myself or someone else. We can't get these things. Only God knows the future. Only God has these things laid out for us. And so with Deuteronomy 29.29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. So the response to this, do not follow magic. Be satisfied with what God has revealed and delight in his law. And so Simon here used his sorcery to amass a large group of people and they have created him and and said that he is some type of God, the power of God who is called great. He has all of Samaria in this region held in amazement and Philip shows up here in verse 12. Let's read. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and men, and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so now we have this area of Samaria that's been under Simon's uh, kind of mysticism and magical rule, so to speak, and now Philip comes forth, bringing the message of the kingdom of God, the, the good news of the gospel, and we see the light is now shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So it's this contrast between demonic occult magic, and now we have the gospel of the light coming forth, and the people are now captivated by something new, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. 
So the message of truth, the message of the one true and living God, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, is preached, and the people respond in belief and faith of this God. You notice back in the verses uh, from last week, Philip is preaching the gospel and performing miracles and healings and exorcisms of demons. We see all that stuff taking place last week. And if Simon, this magician, had been such a great magician, why is it that there's still demons that need to be cast out? Why is it there's people that still need to be healed? It's interesting to kind of think of this as magic that Simon would bring forth would be just this kind of amazement type of thing. There wouldn't be real healing. There wouldn't be real deliverance. Simon had been such a divine magician as he and the people stayed. What exactly what he's, was he doing? It certainly wasn't anything of true merit and value. Think of our current context and we think of the faith healers that we could see on the TV that have these great audiences that show up to be healed and yet you'll never find one of these faith faith healers inside a children's hospital. You'll never find them darkening the halls of a cancer ward. Instead they peddle their garbage to stacked audiences and deceived individuals. So we think of Simon in such a way. And there's a sense that we're getting here now that the people recognize that there's something quite different about Philip's message versus Simon's as we see that their response now is belief and obedience in baptism. It is when one is encountered by the light of the gospel that such a response is beckoned of them. When we come into contact with the real gospel, when we come into contact with Christ, our response is obedience and faith. As He reveals Himself to us, we cannot encounter the risen Christ and be the same always be some sort of change. There will be obedience. And as verse 8 stated last week, there will be joy. Joy that's not produced by some demonic sorcery, but joy that exceeds all understanding. Joy that you, being a creature, are right with your Creator. So the message has come to Samaria. The people are believing. They see the Gospel. They believe the Gospel And they obey in baptism. We see something else take place. Look at verse 13. Simon responds to this message as well. It says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we come to our first point for today. And it is perceived belief and professing belief are not true faith in of themselves. By all accounts, if we were to go off the testimony so far, it would appear that Simon has come to faith in Christ. Looking back to verse 9, you even see that Simon had stopped practicing magic once Philip had entered into the town. And so Simon has heard the message of the kingdom of God, that Christ is the Messiah. He is crucified, buried, and raised again on the third day. He's heard the message of reconciliation with God. He's heard the message that all who believe shall not perish but have eternal life. All these wonderful truths he has heard, and as the text says, he has believed. And again, by all metrics we can judge by, it would appear that he has a true profession. If we judge merely on outward expression, he would be 
seem to be a believer. It's continuing on with Philip, as it says there in the text. Again, every outward expression that he would hope to, that we would hope to see in a profession of faith, baptism, desire for discipleship. Simon's checking all the boxes. He's following Philip. He's been baptized. He says he believes the, the word preached, the message given. We have to be careful, though, because we're not judged by outward professions. We're not judged by actions. Our salvation is not bound up in any of these things that Philip or Simon here is doing. Think of our Lord in Matthew 23, verse 28, when he's addressing the Pharisees. He says, to them, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, from our text so far, we wouldn't get that picture yet. We wouldn't get that idea with Simon because everything is checking the right boxes so far with him. He's believed in the, the message. He's been baptized. We get a little bit of an insight here at the end of verse 13. Look at the end of verse there. It says, Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We begin to get insight into the possibility of Simon's confession or his profession of faith. We see there that his amazement is in the signs that are being done by Philip. He's amazed by the miracles. He's caught up by the miracles. And we see this juxtaposition, whereas just a little while ago, Simon was the one performing these great magic feats in front of the people. He had their amazement. And now Philip comes into the town with the true message of the gospel, and he's caught in amazement of what they, or what Philip is doing. So we have this changing where Simon is no longer amazing, but he's now being drawn to that which is amazing. Simon encounters the work of the Holy Spirit through Philip and is left in amazement. That is the problem that we face at times, though, that we can conceive of our own self-righteousness that we can profess with our mouths but we're professing something that is the inappropriate object of our faith. You see this a lot with the prosperity preachers. They're thankful to God because their bank account is full. So the object of faith is not actually God. It's what has been provided. So we get a glimpse of that here with Simon. That he's professing to believe, but his eyes are on the miracles and not the one performing them. So that's the deceitfulness of sin, the flesh, and the devil. It can conjure up in our minds perceived righteousness. The heart can convince one that they are pursuing what is perceived to be correct, that chasing every avenue of sin or fulfilling every lust, pursuing every temptation is all what is true, good, and right. Our, our heart can deceive us in that way. Our mind can deceive us in that way. I can remember being in a room full of addicts one night, doing what addicts do, and having a full-on argument with one of the other guys there that God existed. In the middle of my addiction, in the middle of my slop, my filth, having a full-on argument with this guy, trying to persuade him that God existed, saying, I believe in God, you should too. If you don't, you're going to hell. And here I am in the middle of my sin, lost as all get out, I have this idea in my head that I was right. 
I, I perceived and I believed this as being what was right. We have to understand the deceitfulness that sin brings, that wickedness that is in our own hearts. Those lies that can spring forth from the mouth of Satan. Again, like I said, I was fully convinced in that moment that I was in the right, having no idea that I was worse off than that man I was speaking to. For my belief in my mind was deceiving me to hell. And so we must comprehend the divide between belief and true biblical faith. I think James does this really well for us when he says in James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And so we start to see this understanding of, okay, Simon has said he believes, but what does that even mean to believe? There's this difference between belief and true biblical faith. I remember reading that verse the first time after being saved, and the full weight of that hit me to the core. As I remembered that night of arguing with this man about believing in God, having no idea of who this God was that I thought I believed, having no idea of the gospel, arguing over the existence of God, thinking I was safe from the wrath to come, but I was deceived in my belief. To wrestle with that idea for a moment. To understand what James is saying there, even the demons believe. The faith of demons, their theology is far superior to ours. And so we must understand that there's something about true biblical faith that goes beyond belief. It goes even beyond the theology that the demons have. I mean, we can have all the credentials of theology, all of the clocked hours in a church pew, all of the time spent learning and reading, and yet all of that cannot save us. All of that cannot save us. And so we see Simon here. He believes the message. He is baptized. But we get this glimpse into his heart that his eyes are upon the miracles and not the Messiah. Look now at verses 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we come now to this peculiar section of the text in these verses, and by God's grace we must take a sanctified approach to understand what is taking place here. And I will admit full on and straightforward that I had to consult quite a few commentaries to kind of get an idea of what's taking place as we see them believe them be baptized but the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon them and so for some reason in God's sovereignty the Samaritan believers do not receive the Holy Spirit right away we learn that Peter and John get notice uh, a letter from Philip explaining what is taking place in Samaria that as the gospel's going forth the Samaritans are believing they're believing the message they're being Baptized, they're showing obedience in faith. And so the gospel goes forth in Samaria, and this letter gets to Peter and John, and they're sent to Samaria. They're sent to go and, and lay hands on them to see what is taking place, to see if this belief of the Samaritans is true, right, and good. 
the, again, like I said, the Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit. We see something kind of similar later on in Acts 11 when the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. It's an apostolic kind of formation that the apostles are there to witness it. So that it's almost a sense of like, okay, the Israel's been the kind of the cool kids club, and now that there's new groups being added, the apostles are there for a reason to kind of put their hand on it, of, of their hand of approval almost. And so we kind of see that in Acts 11 with the Gentiles, but here we're seeing it with the Samaritans. So for whatever reason, God sees fit that an apostle be present when a new group is added to the fold. The Samaritans and Jews had always been at odds with each other, and so it's easy to see why an apostolic presence was desired with these two groups as Samaritans are coming to faith. We see there at verse 17 that the apostles come and they lay hands on them. As we remember from earlier in Acts, when the proto-deacons are ordained and, and, and set apart, the apostles gather them in front of the group and they lay hands on them. So laying hands on these people is a sign of communion with the body. When the apostles come and lay hands on the Samaritans. They're saying these people are part of the fold of God. They're part of the church. And so we see that laying on the hands signifying that they have been set apart as the members of Christ. And so we see that with the Samaritans. So for God's divine purposes, the Holy Spirit is delayed for the Samaritans for a moment, but when the apostles arrive, they receive the Holy Spirit. So with that, we come to our second point in our pursuit of understanding faith as a gift from God. The heart must be changed. The heart must be changed. It is clear that as the Spirit descends upon the believing Samaritans, there, there has been a true work of God. We know this from Ezekiel 11, verse 19. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So we see the promise of a changing of the heart of stone to flesh is guaranteed by the implantation of the Spirit of God in the believer. So the removal of the heart of stone, the heart of flesh, is given with this guarantee, the signed seal of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to have faith. It has to be a gift from God. It cannot be something that's conjured in our own minds. It cannot be something that's just merely professed with our mouths. It has to be of God. It has to be His gift. It's the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee of our salvation. It's the Holy Spirit that has caused us to be born again. Yes, we are called to repent and believe, but unless the Spirit moves, we have no hope. We have no assurance. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy made us alive. Now the verses that we opened with, for by grace you are saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so this idea of faith coming to the Samaritans was God gifting them the Holy Spirit, God gifting them repentance and faith. What the experience of the Samaritans was is the mercy and grace of God being delivered to them by the proclaimed word. We understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon them, the incredible 
miracle of regeneration. Thus says the Lord, I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. You see that their belief has become true and abiding faith, that which is tangible to the heart, that which testifies to the soul. You are right with God as His Spirit gives us the guarantee of the hope of our salvation. All of this, beloved, all of this is because of His mercy and grace extended to us. The faith of the Samaritans was the mercy of God upon them, was the grace of God upon them that Philip would be sent to preach the good news, that the message would come to Samaria as a miracle in itself. And so this is what the Samaritans are experiencing. The allure of magic is crushed as the true movement of God is experienced. The gospel is the true power of God into salvation. Simon and all of his magic could never could never come close to what God offers in the gospel. It's the joy of knowing Christ, the joy of knowing that you're right with your creator. There's nothing in all of creation that can compare to this. No magic, no power. Nothing can compare to the value of knowing Christ, of knowing His love for you, of knowing His joy in saving you, that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross on your behalf. Nothing in all this world can balance the scale of knowing Christ. The magic of this world becomes dim in the light of the glories of Christ. The taste of this world becomes bitter as we feast upon the promises of God, as we allow these promises to be in our hearts and our minds, as we understand who it is that has created us, who has created all things, that the author of life and death has called you his own. Cheap magic and sorcery become so bitter when we understand the glories of God, when we delight in him, when we delight in his law word. And this distinction is what is key to understanding what we're about to see with Simon. We already know that people of Samaria are filled with joy, as we learned from last week. We see them being obedient in faith by being baptized. Now the apostles come and the Spirit descends upon them. Think of me with me for a moment. You're, you don't have to know the exact date, but there is a point in your life when you realize something had changed and Christ had entered your life and and that joy and that experience of you get to know God now. You get to be with Him. He has called you into His fold. That experience of joy and happiness and gladness that God has made you right before Him through what Christ has done, that, that moment is, is something that you would never trade in your life. You would never want to pervert that or, or distort that in any single way. And what we see here now is something different with Simon. He said he believes. He has been baptized. He's amazed by what Philip is doing. And so then we get to really get a dive into what Simon's heart is here in verses 18 and 19. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Get a dark insight into Simon's heart here. He's been amazed by the miracles of Philip. 
And now he encounters the apostles laying on of hands and the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon offers money to the apostles for them to give him this power also. So we come now to our final point for this morning. God cannot be bought. Get this dark insight into Simon's mind. A single statement that shows his true intentions. Every bit of his professed belief is shown in the true light for what it is as he attempts to buy the power of God. He attempts to buy the favor of God. His motives are made clear as he perceived that this power could be used for his own benefit. It was commonplace for these magicians to go around and get money for their sorcery. They would get fees from the people to conjure up spells or do this and that, some sort of black magic. And so what Simon sees firsthand is this power that the apostles have to bring and give the Holy Spirit So he witnesses this and he approaches the apostles with a handful of silver to purchase this power as if you could buy the Spirit of God. So we see here now finally the object of Simon's belief. And it was not the gospel, it was not Christ, it was the power and wonders of the Spirit. That is the object of his belief. His desire is for these things. His faith was in the grandiose experience that could be had or put on display goes back to his earlier statement when he says himself that he is someone great we all know someone or have experienced it ourselves that when given a little bit of power our sinful desire is to abuse that and to put it on display for all to see to make much of ourselves to make much of our own name and so it is with Simon he merely sees the next big thing for him the next big thing that's going to elevate his status and he's willing to pay a fee to obtain it. So I'd ask us this morning, what is the object of your faith? Is it the ultimately the community that you have here? Is it the relationships with one another? Is it your theology? What's the object of your faith? Because... What will stand in the end is the object of our faith is Christ and Him crucified. We cannot buy God's favor. We cannot earn our way into His presence. The object of our faith must be Christ and Christ alone. We see again in our modern context the televangelists. They offer up blessings in return for money. We see the selling of prayer cloths that have been anointed. You see this, the, the telling to sow seed and the promise that it will return to you tenfold. But always focused on the monetary, always focused on the possessions, always focused on what you can gain. The prosperity gospel that promises health and wealth, that promises all the desires of your hearts. All of these people have their object of faith in the gifts and not the giver. It's not about the joy of Christ for them. It's about the material gain from Christ. And that is not hope. That is 
not the gospel. And so many are being led astray to the wrath of God by this perversion. So many are led astray by these teachers and their wickedness and their own hearts. These teachers stop at nothing to have more power, more influence, more money. That's why Simon is desiring the power for himself. He wants to make himself a great name again. He wants to be the one again mesmerizing and amazing the people. He wants to get back his little kingdom that has been destroyed by the kingdom of light. So, the gospel is not for sale. True and abiding faith is a gift from God that cannot be conjured in the mind or bought with money. You must die to yourself and repent of your sins. And above all, you must be born again. Simon's problem was a heart problem. Faith requires regeneration. And we get to see this drawn out for us in these next few verses as the apostles respond to Simon's request. Look with me at verse 20. But Peter said to him, My, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for you have, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Simon offers to the apostles, silver in order that he might receive the power that they have. And Peter responds with this strong rebuke and this threat of a curse. That may your silver perish with you also, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That is a curse threat there. Such a foolish idea that one could purchase the gift of God. That we could offer anything up to him. It's all his anyway, all the money, all the power, all the possessions, all things were created by him, and with a word he sustains them, and with a word they could all cease to exist. Simon offers silver for the blood of Christ. What a blasphemous statement. A blasphemous idea worthy of this curse that Peter threatens against him. To think that you could purchase the blood of Christ with 30, 40, 50 pieces of silver. But lest we get proud in throwing arrows at Simon, we must examine our own hearts. We must stop and realize, when have we offered silver for grace? When have we maybe tithed a little extra more because we've been overtaken by a besetting sin? When have we offered to maybe volunteer in order to make penance before God? When have we gotten this idea in our head that we can make ourselves right before we approach His throne in repentance? This idea that maybe... I should serve God a little bit before I take these sins before His throne. Offering up sacrifices to God in order to, to have right place before Him again. To have restoration. We seek so many different ways to be restored before God apart from Christ. We try to satisfy our own flesh by, well, I'm going to do a few things and then I'll approach God's throne because then everybody, look what I did for you, Lord. Before we approach his throne, how is that any different than Simon offering silver for the power of God? 
We often try to punish ourselves a little bit in order to try and make things right with God. That our little sacrifice might measure up to what Christ has done. How foolish we are to have this in our minds. How could we could ever compare our small sacrifice to the worthiness of Christ's death on the cross where He bled and died, bore the wrath of the Father? How could we even think in our minds that we could then bring some small penance to Him and gain His favor when He has sacrificed it all for us? Nothing could compare to the sacrifice of Christ. It is truly wicked when we have these thoughts that we must do something before we approach His throne. Christ has done it all. He has paid the way for you. If you are in Him, you have access to the throne of God. When you fall short and you sin, seek Him first above all else. Seek Him first. It's the same wicked sin that Simon finds himself in, believing that he can pay for the free gift of God. We've all done it. We've not approached Christ immediately after sinning. We've all tried to buy some time and earn back right standing before Him. That's not how it works. That's not the Gospel. That's not what 1 John says. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It doesn't say do X, Y, and Z, then confess your sins. We go before His throne boldly and confidently because of what Christ has done. That's why we opened with Ephesians chapter 2. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. Right down to the faith that you have is all a gift from God. So Peter makes sure that Simon is fully aware of this as he continues with this statement. You have no part or lot in this, for your heart is not right with God. And this is the proof of Simon's false profession. Up to this point, we could have examined all of the externals and and maybe even chalked this up to, well, he's a new Christian, so he's making some mistakes. But Peter is given a divine insight into Simon's heart. And this is where his belief is exposed as false because his heart is not right with God. Again, up to this point, all the judgments were made on external evidences. What we see here now is that God gives Peter some divine insight into Simon's heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this, saints and friends, is where we must begin to examine ourselves in light of God's Word. Simon professed belief in Christ. He was baptized. He continued on with Philip. Every single one of us in this room this morning is capable of putting on the church face, the church clothes, saying the right words, going through the right motions. There's something wholly different, though, to actually walk with Christ and to be known by Him. I think of Judas, one of the twelve disciples. He sat under the teaching of Christ for years. He saw the miracles firsthand, witnessed and was taught far beyond what we could ever imagine. And yet for 30 pieces of silver, he gave up Christ. By all accounts, we would say, this man walked with Jesus. Of course he believes. 
This man was taught by Jesus. Of course he believes. But when it came down to it, the expression in his heart was greed for silver, and he sold Christ for 30 pieces. So ultimately, it does not come down to the external, it's the internal that matters. The Lord looks upon the heart. You must be born again. We see here in verse 22, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart might be forgiven. So Peter gives him a warning. He gives him a warning that he'll be cursed, that your silver and you will perish. In the same sentence, he offers an extension of grace to the command of repentance. Turn, Simon. Turn away from your wickedness. God cannot be bought. Pray that the Lord would change your heart, your thoughts, change your intentions, because apart from that you will perish like your silver. So the gracious offer from Peter to Simon in the midst of Simon's egregious sin is the same offer that goes forth today to all who would repent and believe. Turn away from your sin. Flee from the wrath of God. Oh dear friend, if you find yourself in this church today examining your heart and examining its motives, its affections, and you find that it is not for Christ, it is not for the Gospel, that your life may have the appearance of righteousness, but inwardly you know that you're not right with God, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can be set free from the bondage of sin. Would today be the day of salvation? Would today be the day that the gospel crushes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh? Repent, therefore, and flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the ugliness that is in your heart and cling to Christ. Cling to His merits. Cling to His work. Cast aside every bit of self-righteousness you might have and call upon His name that you might be saved. You shall be saved of the bitterness within your heart, the enmity that you show towards your Creator. Don't be like Simon who offered up silver for the favor of God. Do not be like Simon when offered repentance replies with, you pray for me. You pray for me that nothing what you said may come upon me. Look at verse 24, and Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon has no true concern for his heart to be changed. He asks that Peter pray that he not receive the consequence of his sin. It is the escape from wrath that Simon desires, not the treasure of Christ. And so I say to you children here this morning, to you teens, those who are raised uh, up to know Christ in your homes, those who have parents that desire to share with you the gospel, you cannot rely on your parents' faith to save you. Simon asks Peter to pray for him, and he doesn't seek the Lord himself. I praise God that you are growing up in households where your parents are praying for you. That they are giving you the gospel. But when it comes down to it, you must seek Him on your own. 
Your parents are a shelter for you. Your home, being godly, is a shelter for you. But they cannot shelter you from Him. Their faith cannot shelter you from His wrath. You must know this Christ. You must call upon His name and have faith to believe in what He has promised. Your parents can lead you, they can guide you, but they cannot shelter you from Him. You must repent and believe this God. Call upon Him. Seek Him as your treasure. Abide in Him. I know the pull of this world. We all, your parents know the pull of this world. Your family knows the struggle it is to be wrestling with the things of this world. Your friends will pull you in this direction, that direction. We know the pull. It is real. But you must recognize that Christ is worth it because He is so much greater than anything else this world can offer. He is worthy of your praise and your adoration. You have life and breath because He gives it to you daily. This is the God of your father and your mother. Call upon Him and believe. Find fullness and joy in Him. Believe upon this Christ. May no one here be like Simon, having the outward appearance, but no actual inward change. 1599 Geneva Bible has a comment on this passage. And it says this about Simon. The wicked and the very reprobate are constrained oftentimes to taste of the good gift of God, but they cast it up again forthwith. Simon has encountered the goodness of God through the preaching of the message. He's encountered and witnessed the amazing miracles that have been performed by Philip. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and as soon as repentance comes up, he vomits it up because he hates it. All of that goodness that tasted so sweet becomes putrid to him because he hates the God who created him. He hates the God that calls him to be accountable, the God who says, you cannot purchase my love or my favor with your silver. Do not let your taste of the goodness of God be vomited up when the cares of this world come upon you, when the trials of life befall you, when the lust of the flesh beseech you. Christ is worthy, saints. Those in Him this morning, may we be a people who examine ourselves, not wanting to grow stale in our growth and our sanctification, not wanting to find Christ be bitter for a moment, but to treasure and Savior the honey that is His Word. May we be the first to allow God to pierce through our hearts. May we be the ones who make much of Christ in the presence of our family, in the presence of our friends, that when trials befall us, people will be so perplexed why we have such joy in the midst of sorrow. May we be a people who learn and treasure and savor the goodness of God. We have much to learn from Simon, the magician, much to be warned of through this account. As our Lord Jesus instructed Nicodemus, we must be born again. You must be born again. Simon brings forth an example of one who has the outward appearance of a sheep, but inwardly is a ravenous wolf. He delights in the lust of power as he seeks to make his name great seeks to have the enamor of the people, doing just enough external actions to blend in as a tear amongst the wheat, professing belief but not having true faith.
and ultimately attempting to purchase the gift of God. So we come back now to where we started. True and abiding faith is a gift from God. It cannot be conjured in the mind or bought with money. You must die and die to yourself. Repent and believe the gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord. When you sin, dear saints, seek Him. Seek His fount of blood that cleanses you from all of your unrighteousness. Seek that place of confession where the scandalous exchange takes place, where Christ bears your sin on that cross, and in return, you bear His robe of righteousness. He is faithful, saints. He is faithful to forgive, and He ever lives to make intercession on your behalf. He ever lives to give you the gift of His grace and His presence and His mercy. Receive that gift daily. Cherish it and share it with this world. We close now with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Let us pray.